Hi, everybody. We're, uh, uh, this is the Inland Valley Art and Literature Show, and we've got a bunch of poets talking about some art today. And I'm a poet. My name's John Branningham. I'm from uh, Ontario. I'm Ken uh, Johnson. Thank you very much. <laughs> my name's Tim Hatch, also a poet, uh, also from Ontario. Kate Flannery from Claremont. George Hammonds from Pomona. I'm uh, Jeffrey Gressley. I'm Tim's friend. <laughs> and today we're, we're talking about um, a show. It's actually virtual art that you can see. And we thought it was really timely. Usually um, we're taping these about a month, three weeks before we show it. But I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this up almost immediately because it's UCR Virtual Arts. If you go there, there's an exhibit about, that has photography that fire. And right now the fires are exploding all over our area. Uh, they're, there's, they're all up and down California. And um, these are interesting. Some of them, some of the, the images are really interesting. Some of them I, I absolutely do not like. Um, and we'll get into that in a while. It starts off with an image. Um, I'm, I'm glad we have a firefighter here because I'm not exactly sure what this one on the left is, Ken. What, what, what does that portray? There's a whole bunch of sparks blowing on somebody. She doesn't look like a firefighter to me because she has her hair long and exposed where it could actually catch fire, and it's, there's regulations against that. Firefighters uh -huh. have to keep their hair bunched up and tucked in. Um, so I don't think that, and it looks like she has a, there's no reason for her to be where she is right now, um, and it looks like a camera. Yeah. So I'm guessing this is simply a photographer getting an extreme shot mm -hmm. rather than a firefighter. So, okay. So she's not really serving a purpose in terms of stopping the fire. No, <laughs> okay. no, no. no. And then there, there, we, we have another shot right next to it, which is um, what we often think of when we think of um, fire in the Southern California. And that's uh, uh, from the point of view of a, of a building and a brass fire coming toward it. Um, Okay, so uh, th these are images. Uh, I think we've all dealt with fire. I, I almost lost a house in, I think, was the old fire 2004? 2003. And Ken, doesn't, Ken was a part of the team that saved my house. Um, I don't think you were walk, walking in front of my house fighting it, but uh, I, I'm I, 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 I Googled your address and went up there and saved it just for you. Thank you. That, that was really nice. Uh, so... My, <laughs> <laughs> that is that is considerate service. Absolutely. So well done. Um, so uh, I, I find the, the images uh, both attractive and disturbing, m many of them. Because uh, fire is kind of that way, too. I mean, fire to me is attractive and disturbing. Um, I don't know. How, how, what, what is your visceral reactions? I'm guessing we all have slightly different visceral reactions based on our history. I think fire is... Uh, Fire and lava and all of that is gorgeous, um, which is a strong word to use, but I mean it. Um, I, I can look at volcano documentaries endlessly. Um, mm. It's also terrifying. I started a fire when I was a kid, um, like an idiot. I threw a match into a juniper bush, mm. and uh, it went up like uh, flash paper, and... Uh, there's a whole story with that that I'll avoid telling because it's honestly, there's no payoff, <laughs> but uh, uh, I find fire absolutely beautiful to look at. And it's also, of course, just utterly terrifying. I remember the, uh, it might've been the 2003, 2004 fire. Was that the fire where they cleared everyone out of uh, North Upland and Claremont? Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, chaperoning a uh, high school dance with my wife, Annette, for Ganesha High. And we were at the Pomona Valley Mining Company where they were having, I don't know, prom or maybe it wasn't prom. It might have been a homecoming dance. I don't know. It was a dance. And uh, I saw the fire, actually, a line of fire traveled down the hillside about as fast as my hand is crawling over the camera right now. Like, it was, I've never seen anything move that fast anything that large. Um, and uh, when we were finished chaperoning, we, uh, we <laughs> when we finished chaperoning, sorry, I was distracted by a text I got from one of my friends named Jeff. And uh, 
anyway, uh, Jeff points out that no payoff has never stopped me from telling a story in the past. Anyway, after uh, after we finished uh, chaperoning the dance, we went up to North Upland where we were checking on my parents, and uh, my aunt and uncle had actually been evacuated out of their house. And, um, I, I I mean, we we were driving through the evacuation as it was happening just to get up there. It was. Uh, probably the wrong thing to do in hindsight but anyway it's terrifying but uh beautiful yeah I, 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 in 2003 i lived up uh, in twin peaks near lake arrowhead and i'm that we had a mandatory evacuation order which i slept through that came down the streets and and none of my neighbors checked on me either so i, I woke up the next day and everybody had left their windows open and the radios playing uh, i guess this was but i guess it was their their desire to stop looters uh, but it, the result was I felt like I was in Twilight Zone or something. And then we left and because um, we realized what would what we'd miss. And the fire was right there. You know, it was it crawled up to the top and we're luckily able to get out quickly. Um, so it was really disturbing. And I think we all have kind of disturbing stories of these, none more so probably than Ken. Um, but uh, having lived here, I don't know, what, what, what other sorts of experiences? It, it's, it's interesting, these, these kinds of images um, – evoke something from us because of a collective memory from living in Southern California and fire country. Um, so I, I, I think it, it causes uh, uh, very large reactions in people. It does for me, seeing these images. One of the things that sort of struck me as a, as a newcomer to Southern California in the 60s, I'd come from the Northwest where horse fires at the time and, and my family was involved in um, logging business and the lumber business. And, um, you know, so fires were not strange to us, but up there, fires are far away. You know, you see them up in the hills, and you think, oh, they're going to be closed, or, you know, uh, air quality is going to be bad for a while. But the fires are far away, and the difference between here was coming to Claremont to college and living at the foothills, you know, near the foothills, where the fire is just kind of right there. Um, it's right in front of you, and you see mm. all of its detail, and you see the individual flame, you see um, how fast it moves, like you said, you know, as fast as you can get to move, you know, ever. And, and my first reaction when I saw that, that same fire as it moves to the west, I mean, and that was just not even referring to you, everything was um, It was an awful season for fire. And what I remember thinking, my Absolute first impression was, my God, it's alive. And I'd never oh. heard it was. But it seemed to have That's interesting. its own breath, its own uh, direction. And it was just uh, devastating. And I thought I was familiar with fire. Not me. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I should do a plug right now. Uh, if you really want to know the inside scoop about fire and trauma, you need to read Chaos and Ash by Ken Johnson, uh, which is a, a memoir in pieces, a fragmented memoir of uh, the issues of fire and, and trauma associated with them. Um, so you, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, the sound's cutting just a little bit in and out uh, with yours, with Kate. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I, I got most of that, and I, I think it's it's fascinating too. It does feel like it's alive. It does feel like a. I, I don't know, um, George. You you come from from Phoenix, and is it, I'm right. I got, I'm getting the right Arizona town. Um, is uh, is this uh, is that? Do you have fire there like this? I haven't been there in so long. I mean, yeah, I was a kid in in Phoenix, and um, you know, the main thing I remember is dust storms. But um, I was at Cal State San Bernardino, um, and I can't remember exactly what year it was that we had the fire there that um, basically they had to evacuate the campus. Do you remember, Tim, um, when they had to evacuate the campus for uh, fires? But um, they evacuated everybody to the old San Bernardino airport. I think, and, that, I think uh, that predates – oh, God, sorry. I think that predates my actually being there. That must have been prior right. to 2012. That was part well, of the 2003 I, fire. Yeah, So, but the thing that got me about it was that basically they were evacuating people kind of like along 
the, you know, or along the mountain range all the way through. I knew people who were going to San Diego because they had been evacuated and they were being evacuated there, but it was, there were fires everywhere during that time. And um, I was working for public safety on campus. And so, um, you know, even though the campus was closed, we were still on duty. So we had all of the firefighters, um, you know, basically taking breaks at the public safety office on campus and stuff. But it was, it was kind of amazing because the fire was jumping over temporary buildings and I mean, just the pattern of the way it was burning so indiscriminately, it would pass up one building, it would burn everything up to a certain building, jump over it, and then burn the next building on down. And so that's the one thing that I really recall, and just the smoke um, for days and days, just the smoke. Um, And if you're familiar with the campus, you know that um, there are roadways north of the campus. They didn't exist at that time. Um, towards the north side of the campus, there were tumbleweeds that were probably six feet tall. And after the fire, they had just been disintegrated, like evaporated. And the thing that got me was that all of that, all of that, I, I mean, you can't even imagine how much that weighed, but all of those tumbleweeds that were out there were just gone. And the only thing that you could think of was, well, gee, they turned into ash and floated up into the sky. You know, um, it was incredible. So, um, you know, I mean, that's my main experience. George, when you were there, when they when they took you um, and and uh, relocated you at the air base, the old Norton Air Base, yeah. um, I was there too. I was the mental health officer on first the old fire and Grand yeah. Fire, and then um, the. Because everything was going up so fast and it was so chaotic that layers of organization filled in as fast as the fire was going by. And suddenly I found myself the mental health officer for the entire zone, which meant fires from Simi up north all the way down to the Mexican border. Yeah. (laughs) And it was just crazy. I I was dispatching my crews to deal with death of a firefighter here, a community meeting that was getting hysterical over there. And, and it was just a cluster. It was yeah. an amazing time. No, it, it, I mean, it, it was really something. And, and like I said, there were kids who said, well, I'll just go with my friends. And so they went to Upland. Upland was evacuated. They wound up going to San Diego and the family in San Diego had been evacuated. It, it was just, um, it, it was just like this intense feeling that, oh, gee, everything is on fire, you know. So well, you know, if they went down to San Diego, the biggest problem with that was the Cedar Fire at that time was the biggest of them all. And they yeah. would have had to drive right down through the lines to get to San Diego. Mm. Well, it was it was funny. The person that I'm talking about said that as they were writing um, that uh, music for uh, Adagio for for uh, strings <laughs> came on like the famous music from apocalypse now. Yep. And um, they were like, it was so perfect. You know, it was just, <laughs> it's like, this is our lives. You know? So, yeah. but, um, but yeah, it, I mean, it was impressive to me. Now I wasn't there. I was in Yukaipa when they, when the fire started and when they evacuated the campus. And so when I went to work, whatever day it was, I went to work. It was like, um, I mean, the, uh, like again, I was I was amazed at the buildings that it had jumped over, mm-hmm. and that the 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 pattern of the burn was just incredible to me. Yeah, it's it's interesting. These these images are evoking these kinds of memories. When I go outside of California, people um, uh, say so I'd never lived there because the earthquakes. To me, the earthquakes are no big deal, but the fires are the things that really. Um, they're I think the rough equivalent of tornadoes or whatever it is, other natural disaster you get in those other places. Um, so I, I, I can't imagine trying to like coordinate all of the mental health services all the way from San Diego to Simi Valley. That's it wasn't not... very mentally healthy. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, wh- one thing, one thing I would tell you is that they evacuated the campus. So they took everybody to the airport. They gave you a blanket and a cot. And so all of the homeless people from San Bernardino had been evacuated to the airport. And so you had these little freshmen who 
may have never been in an environment where they you know were confronted with homelessness or anything and they were on the cut right next to people who were you know hadn't had a bath in a long time and things and it was really something to just go in there and when you're talking about the mental health you could see um the um disorientation and the nervousness of a lot of those kids i you know i really felt um uh, like, like, again, it, it was a horrible exposure for a lot of people um, just because of the magnitude of it. And everybody was just kind of pushed in here, like, here's your cotton and here's somebody else's cotton. And so, I mean, you could just, you could just sense the uh, desperation on those kids when you got there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I was going to go to one of those places, but I couldn't because I had dogs. Uh, which is always a, a problem, you know. If you evacuation centers, you can't go go to with dogs. You got, I don't know. What what are you supposed to do with them? Turn them into the pound or something for a while? I'm not, I'm not sure. Can um, you know? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Well, I've seen on the news that they have like those rescues that open up, or people open up their like farms and ranches or whatnot, mm. and take in like horses and stuff. I don't know what they do with dogs and cats. Yeah, luckily I, we had friends in Long Beach that took us in, Jan and David. And uh, my, my dog's uh, girlfriend lived with him. He, he was a uh, German Shepherd Husky, and she was a Great Dane. He could walk underneath without duck, ducking. It was, it was a really doomed love affair, but uh, he was happy to be there. <laughs> I, just, oh, I, I met these images of Lady and the Tramp. You know, <laughs> eat the spaghetti. <laughs> he was an 80-pound dog, too, but you know, he was completely dwarfed by this, this Great Dane. Uh, well, typically, so. animal control centers can can take in some. And typically they have a particular animal control center has a bunch of unofficial satellite resources. People who just as their hobby take on raccoons, for instance, or, or, and so they've, they've, they have them, but it's usually totally unofficial. Nobody really knows what's going on with those in the fire community. Um, I had to evacuate some horses once, and it's it's a a big management problem because you know you got to blind them and you got to lead them by hand, and and if they get really squirrely because of what they smell or hear, then it can it can be a real out of control situation fast. Um, but animal people tend to be fairly resourceful, and typically find what their animals need. Um, as you can see in the pictures that we looked at in, in your collection, and there's a lot of animals that get burned up in forest fires, um, but uh, domesticated animals typically have their people looking out after them most of the time. Yeah, I'm glad you separated between pets and animals. Like, a dog is really, it's an animal, yes, but it's not a not a big cat in the forest. It, that distinction is relevant. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. I'm th- thinking about what what else this brings up for me. I'm, I'm also wondering, Ken, how how well do these represent the actual feeling of being in that fire? Is, I mean, is this how well do those pictures? Yeah. Uh, pictures of fire are kind of like pictures of war or stories about war. Um, they're all true. Every single one of them. <laughs> Even though you may not believe it, it's happened. And uh-huh. so you see a picture of, of the, the one on the left on our screen. You have um, shadows of trees and a whole bunch of hot spots. The fire already ha- has gone through for the most part. And there's a lot of pockets of coals and stuff that's creating the infrared image that you see on the, the one on the right. It's, it looks kind of uh, peaceful. There are fires working its way down the hill from the left to the right. And the wind, it's, it's burning against the wind. And so it's not racing. It's just kind of working its way along. And you could put that out with a shovel if you move fast enough. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a whole different kind of, context but then behind that hill you see a lot of smoke some of which is black some of which is white which means that there's some sort of activity going there 
it's there's not a big red glow, so it's not too intense. This is probably some island that didn't burn in the first pass that will burn if if that isn't put out. I see. Is there a distinction between uh, black smoke and white smoke? Uh, yeah, generally the um, black smoke is is when it's burning a lot of rosin rich um, oh. material. And the white smoke is when it's more brushy, and uh -huh. and you know the, there's there's all kinds of uh, indicators one way or the other, but I think that's the most relevant one. If I if it goes through the fire goes through and and it's kind of uh, after the fact, the smoke's going to be white, and if it's if you have a big boil of black smoke, that means it's really going to hell in the middle of it. Oh, I see. So it's okay. a little different. Okay. Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago, we had a prescribed burn in Sequoia where uh, it was a quarter mile uh, below my camp. I was uphill from it. And I said, don't worry about it. Just sleep there. It'll be fine. Uh, and so uh, that was that was terrifying to me. So Never. We, we, yeah. <laughs> we, we left. I mean. Maybe, maybe they know something <laughs> that you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it wasn't that when I got back. We listened to, to trees falling all night. You know, things yeah. like that. And so I can't imagine what it was like when the thing was going. I uh, I have a question I'd like to ask, um, uh, slash get back to a little bit, if that's okay. Um, uh, regarding, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about uh, the picture of the taxidermy that was burning. And um, it reminded me of... Uh, I think it was a lecture I had in one of my uh, grad school classes with Juan Delgado. Um, and his whole point was that it's really, uh, it's really easy to, uh, I don't know about easy, but it's, it's not impossible at all to describe something horrifying in a beautiful way. Um, and uh, it, you have to watch it was his point. You have to be careful when doing that. Like we can we can uh, describe abject poverty in language that is so beautiful that it almost will seem like it's romanticizing the poverty. Mm. Um, and Delgado's point was, uh, you know, don't. <laughs> um, uh, that's a bad thing. We should we it's it's fine to be beautiful with our language, but we should always try to capture the truth of a thing um and so going back to we don't need to look at the picture again but to describe it for anyone who's listening to this it's a picture of there were two pictures but the one in my head is a picture of a wild cat of some type uh it was a taxidermy uh wild cat that was on fire so the image looks a little bit like a living thing burning except as Jeff pointed out, it's holding a pose pretty well. <laughs> and it's very clearly a pose. It's not a pose that a cat would make for more than a second in a living state. So, uh, yeah, but it's still a disturbing image. So uh, what is the responsibility of the photographer? What is the point in capturing something like that? Is that just sensationalism? Or is it, or is there some... Uh, better higher purpose for it and okay, i don't so have those answers it, it, it what well, the image was of a mountain lion just a mountain lion there. okay yeah Thank um, you. i i have seen uh i've been very close to three mountain lions in my life mm -hmm. um and after having i you know and I, I live most of my life in the woods so it's, it's a really rare thing i uh, i know nothing about nature or animals <laughs> i only knew that it wasn't a dog <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, that's, they're, 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 uh, it, it's disturbing to me because anytime I've ever seen one, I've been just overawed by them in a way that I'm not overawed by anything. Um, I saw one run by my buddy and I were, were backpacking and we we're talking to each other, ran behind my buddy, maybe 10 feet. He didn't hear it. Um, and it was running full gallop and it was maybe 300 pounds, something like that. It's a huge animal. Um, and, uh, uh just extraordinary, like just kind of out of out of nowhere it feels like suddenly you're being you're part of a legend or something and to see to see that animal treated in that way it's uh i don't know i don't know it really really disturbed me 
Um, and, uh, if I could jump in, uh, uh, Tim said something that's kind of got me on a different tangent of thought. Um, that pose that, it, that the, the cat is holding in, in real life, maybe a second it would hold that pose because it, it looks like it's getting ready to leap or attack or do something animated. Yeah. Um, and that, and that, that, that kind of strikes that, that disconnect between here's something impossible to freeze this in place, this, this thing in motion which will stay in motion, but it's frozen. And then we have like the one substance on Earth that doesn't fall into the gas, solid, liquid, fire, you know, it's that one thing that can make, it makes a, a, a sensation that doesn't fall into those categories. And, and they're together. So just, just based on a, a, an examination of those pieces alone, put together as a whole, it has to be doing something more than just the sensationalism of, of depicting an animal in that suffering position. Just based on the pieces that are, that are present. I haven't, I mean, like I said, I just saw it, or like we've all just seen it for the first time. So to extrapolate completely and, and efficiently about what the, the artist is trying to convey, that's, that's impossible. And, and, and really, it's not even up to him anymore because he's put it out there, or, or she has put it out there, and it's up to us now to, to make the story up or, or just have it filter right through us because it won't get past our biases. That's fine too. Art is going to affect people differently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and, and, and looked uh, looked the uh, the artist up and my wife for anybody listening who doesn't know me and I can't imagine there is anybody like that. Uh, <laughs> Everyone <laughs> but, knows you. Yeah, seriously. Uh, <laughs> not a lot of people know this, but I'm quite famous. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's an artist who buys black market um, taxidermied endangered animals animals and then burns them there you go uh but for awareness i'm sure yeah yeah, yeah so, look, can i speak up here please, on this one? This, i can't be quiet any longer i'm taking off my firefighter hat right and i'm taking off my writer hat my artist hat, <laughs> and i'm putting on my shrink hat and oh. i will tell you that we can't anticipate what our artwork or writing is going to end up doing how it will be heard by some people and what it prompts and evokes in response from those people. Specifically, studies of serial killers, for instance, show that some very high percentage of them, 90, over 90% of them, were, were individuals who as children killed animals. And very often it was through burning them. Really? And what I'm saying is artists who do put stuff out like that don't know the incendiary effects of their own art. And I use that word deliberately. Mm -hmm. We can't just put out stuff that may touch off really toxic reactions in people any more than we can have a president of the United States who encourages violence in the street. So this, this gets back to what also Tim was saying and what Juan Delgado told him is that we have responsibilities in our, as artists. Precisely. Um, and uh, then the question is, what are those responsibilities? Yeah. Um, uh, I think do no harm. Do no harm, okay. What, I mean, and for me, I'd like, I, I see this uh, photo and I'm not particularly outraged one way or another. But it's like, like the thing I notice is it has like a very um, kind of composed background. Um, the background is totally unreal. It's it's a painting. Yes. And um, I, I see the I, I see that the uh, series is called uh, Resident of Residence of Impermanence. And I have no I, I, there's no context here. I guess that's what I'm saying. And mm. so I would have to know the context of what it is. Um, to actually have an opinion about it. I see what it is and it's not something that I would want hanging on my wall, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's like, and, and again, the fact that it has no context is also a responsibility of the artist. So if you just give me a picture mm -hmm. of a monk who has set himself on fire with no context, 
um, I may have, you know, like a, a visceral reaction to it, you know, but if you give me the context of it, then maybe I can understand it. But this, I just can't understand. You know, it's this, uh, this is also the responsibility of the curator, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is UCR. I think we're, and I don't know if you can hear me clearly if I'm cutting out again. Um, but I, I think we're talking about two things. We're talking about creating the thing in the first place. And we're talking about how we distribute it, how we show it. Um, and that has to do with context. It has to do with explanation, helping people uh, to understand the message, if there is a message, and if it's something beyond just mere sensationalism. But I think as, as people who create things, um, I think we always have to, and it goes back to Tim's mentioning responsibility, you look at the thing you want to create and then you've got some kind of purpose in mind and you've got to sort of balance out the horror or the devastation that you know, could come upon people when they look at this thing you create. Uh, to be the thing you're trying to achieve. Um, and, and I think that's the responsibility of both the artist and okay so 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 there there's uh you're saying there's you, you've got to be aware of what you're trying to achieve and have to work toward that thing and the best way you can, whatever that is. And if that's by shocking people, okay. I mean, one of the things I talked about earlier uh, before the recruiting started was showing the photographs of and other different devices. Boy, does that have an effect. And, and you don't want to see it. You don't want to look at it. But for a whole range of reasons, it's not a bad thing to, to look at those images and be horrified by them. Uh-huh. And, and, but, but in this case, the fact that it's composed, that it's artificial, the, the case of the, the cat in the woods, the big cat in, in the woods, it's just a little bit too contrived. Um, and, and maybe there's some art in that and I, that's fine, but it's not something that I want to keep looking at. And I noticed that none of us particularly want to go back and spend a lot of time looking at it. I mean, for, for, for a variety of reasons. <laughs> Now, now, something I find particularly obscene is when I see photos of hunters holding up dead animals. You know, that's something that really bugs me. It's like, you know, but I mean, hunting is a thing. Some people swear by it, but it's just like, I don't want to see the picture of you holding the fish or, the, you know, like, I don't, you know, it's like a trophy. And it, it's it, all of a sudden, it's like, you know, it's become something other than food or you know, I mean you know what I'm saying it, it's just like when it becomes a trophy um that is obscene to me and this I like like I say like with this I don't know what it is you know I mean I see what they've used to to, to make this piece of art and to be honest I don't even know the fire is real you know like graphic effects are such that I don't even know that but um you know like if somebody came forward and said oh that's not a real fire I just I, you know I made that in Photoshop or something, you know, I mean, that would, that could be just as real, you know, I mean, like I'm saying, I don't know what I'm looking at when I see this, but there's no context to it. Well, what would be the difference if you had a veteran wildlife or fire photographer out there and caught this image for real? Same image. There are images, there's images in this show that do that. Like it's like a bunch of dead horses. Yeah. So what's the difference between that and something that is totally contrived and, and assembled? Is there? Well, I, I, I think that if you're documenting something, it's a little bit different than manipulating it. You know what I'm saying? So if I, if I come across this, this is what I saw, I'm showing you what what happened. There, there's a, there's a different value to it. Um, you're just, you're, it's almost like a report on the news where they say, Oh, this is going to be very disturbing to you. You yeah. know, it's, so it's, yeah. it's it's real. Yeah, correct. And that's the value. Uh, Jeffrey, you're about to say something. Oh, I was just saying, uh, it sounded like George was, was trying to come, uh, say that they have to frame it. Uh, uh, a, 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 a news anchor frames a story. 
uh, they don't just show the raw footage and then cut to the next footage. You know, we have we have frames in which we we narrate this information. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't mean to jump in and uh, and steal the steal the conversation because I did want to jump back to something uh, Ken said uh, before, and actually something you said too, George, about. Um, how it's 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 upsetting for you to see an image of an animal being held up after it's been hunted, correct? Yeah. <clears throat> but how do you feel about like depictions of Hercules wearing the Nemean lion? He wears it. We've been told <laughs> stories. We no, but but since since antiquity, we've been told stories that promote that very thing, but they just didn't have cameras. Yeah. You know. It, uh, well, how can I put it? Um, I'm not familiar with. Hercules wearing the Nemean lion. I just thought that was broad enough for. Um, I mean, another. I'm trying to think of a, a like like people wearing leather, leather or something yeah, like that. Not just that, but um, like even uh, like Native American cultures that would would have to uh, like rites of passage as being being. You, you know, one of one of the, one of the things I was thinking, one of the things I was thinking about, and I, I hate to use uh, a film as a reference, but um, in. Uh, Oh, I'm not sure if it's actually called Last of the Mohicans, yeah. but it's a relatively new film where they hunt and they actually prey over the animal that they have taken for their food. You know, so I mean, I feel a little different about um, having reverence for it as opposed to making it a trophy, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, because we'll bleed that line. Culture will bleed that line all the time, and and it it comes back to that sensationalist aspect and then ego comes into play too. Once we can start uh, showing to the masses, our accomplishments, i.e. killing this animal uh, yeah. be before we had to wear it because there was no other way to, 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 to show it. And I think in, in some psychological way, it, it, it affects us differently than, than that, that shock value of seeing that picture and, and forming all of the stories that it takes to hate that individual right then and there. Without, without context, but we already know the context because we we hold that story, that truth to be, to be evident. Mm -hmm. You know, it's bad to shoot an animal for sport yeah. or for, hunt, yeah. for for non you know essential needs. Yeah, Which I'm not I'm not trying to say that it's right. I'm just saying this is how we this is how uh, we we formulate these these snapshot judgments. Yeah, and 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 what I'm saying is that. I'm, I'm making a judgment it doesn't make me right. So, you know, if, if, if the Trump sons are holding up these water buffalo or whatever they are, um, there's a portion of their culture that admires that. And, you know, I mean, it just doesn't appeal to me, but I can't make that decision for everybody. You know, so I'm, but I'm just saying like, a, like you could show me a picture that would really be obscene to me but the one of the burning taxidermied animals doesn't do that. It doesn't do it, right? Yeah. Isn't there isn't there a point in a in a in a, in a social group in a society where we do have to say you cross the line? Yeah. I mean, oh, I, yeah. I mean, well, sort of uh, yeah. 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 So I mean, you can say, well, the the Trump kids going out and hunting lions. You know, maybe that's where you should draw the lines as a as a society. Sure. Uh, yeah, but but who draws the who draw who gets to draw the line? That's the oldest, done harm. That's the oldest question. <laughs> but right. I think it's part of what a community does. I'll do it. <laughs> I'm just saying that. We need to uh, we need to let lions hunt the Trump sons. <laughs> I'm so, I'm sorry I mentioned them. You're not. They're fair game. I'm uh, sorry. I <laughs> But I, I think that, that, that sort of brings us back, doesn't it, to, to questions about, about what we owe each other in the society and, and where, where do we draw those lines? Do we draw them together? Do we draw them separately? Right now, I think we're all drawing our own lines, and that's I, part of the problem. I do, like, I do like the idea that we are responsible, as artists of any type, we are responsible for framing our work in the right context. And I think... Maybe that's something that the website featuring the particular image could have done a better job of. Like, yeah. now that we've learned that there's a guy who does who buys taxidermy and sets it on fire to photograph it, like, just having that context is helpful in viewing that particular image. And uh, so, not only is the creator of of a piece of art, but as the displayer, as the 
I don't know, purveyor, the, the seller of art. I think, Ken, I think maybe a few weeks ago you were saying that context is everything. Uh, uh, yeah, let's, yeah, look at the, um, I, John, is it okay to talk about the piece of uh, public art that you had suggested or do you want to just save all comments for the, No, that's great. That's great. You're talking about the one in, in, in front of the Claremont College? Yeah, there's a science building that was built relatively recently, um, and it was it was named after uh, Robert Millikan, the science building, not the piece of art. The piece of art adorns it, uh, glorifies it, glorifies the purpose of the place. And Millikan, it turns out, you know, he's brilliant. He he. Uh, I think in 1923, he won the Nobel Prize for his research in physics. He was the first president of Caltech, and they still revere him. Some of them do. Um, but there's a dark side to the guy. And I think this is relevant to this conversation. Um, Millikan fell in with a bunch of folks who were called eugenists, who... Oh who um, felt that it was really important to sterilize certain members of the population yeah. of the country in order to purify the race. Certain members of the population who were not white, by well, and large. By yeah, and large. There's that, uh, the fact of mental, de- what they considered mental deficiency. Right. Um, he... he California has a real sordid history in that regard, mm-hmm. um, specifically California. We had a, a policy that lasted, I think, 60 years, 50 years maybe, uh, ending in 1961, uh, not until 1961, of involuntary sterilization of anybody in any kind of state institution. Let that one sink in. Uh, it wasn't just people of limited intellectual capacity. It was people who had emotional disturbance. It was people who were wards of the state in any way. Um, they could simply, and did, in the, the state of California, involuntarily sterilize 20,000 people during that oh time. 20,000. Okay, so now we have the guy's name. <laughs> and we're glorifying him for his science. Um, but I think there's a deeper context that when we glorify the person's work, being an artist or a scientist or a writer, um, we're kind of embracing the whole person. And as and when we give social um, status to people because of their work in one area, it confers in other areas as well. So it turns out that, that Millikan and, and his group, which was um, called uh, shit, the Human Betterment Foundation, I believe. Um, yeah. Those guys were, so, were, were conferring with the Nazis in Germany mm-hmm. and sh- helping shape their policies of eugenics, and you know where that went. Okay, so what I'm saying is there's there's petitions circulating right now, today, in Pomona College to switch names of that building because of that. And there's petitions of similar nature going on in Caltech where, where they love the guy and have his statue in the middle of their, their uh, campus. And the same with... Um, Oh, is it Berkeley or what? Anyway, oh, Stanford, I think. Um, so we have this big social movement now, and the concept is, well, we can't just throw stuff up without it having a social effect. We need to be more responsible in the things that we show, you know, hold up for reverence. There's a, there's a famous quote in a Supreme Court case called Buck versus Bell. And yeah, and Ken, I'm sure knows it. And Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote the wrote the opinion. 
And the case involved whether or not a Virginia law was valid, which required the um, sterilization of this of this young woman. And in his opinion, he justified his decision that yes, the law is valid uh, by saying three generations of imbeciles are enough. Yes. You know, and and everybody thinks all the women are home. You know, uh, but you know, that's what he is. And I think I think one of the things that's happening today as we look at our entire history is we're going to have to be deeply. Okay, you, you've cut out completely. Oh, really? Last three sentences we missed. Oh, okay. Um, just that I think that what's going on to, in today's society is that we're looking back on our history yes. and, and, and trying to take a deeper look and a closer look at all of those, all of those things that we've revered and, and questioning whether we should continue to revere them. Not, Raymond, a bad, not a bad thing to do from time to time. <laughs> Raymond Chandler was a board member of that same foundation at about the same time. And he, he had one of his writers writing a, um, a column about the benefits of eugenics mm. that, that, that lasted for years in the L.A. Times. I mean, I mean, we have to look at these things. We really do. And we as do. artists and writers, we have to think, well, if I put this out, what's the effect going to be? You know, I can't just put out something for the spectacle of it. You know, it's weirdly reminiscent of what's going on right now with people like J.K. Rowling and the uh, her comments on trans people and right. Um, and you know, there's like an entire generation of of uh, young readers who are now adults who are feeling very betrayed at the moment. And uh, sure, it'll it'll be interesting to see where. It'll be interesting to see where this whole thing winds up landing uh, through the context of history, I guess. Has has anyone ever encountered, like, dispensationalism? What do you mean by this? Huh? What do you mean by this? Uh, Meaning, like, uh, a power will be in effect for a certain season and then move on and no longer be in effect. Hmm. Like dispensationalism means that for this window, this force is is active. As we move out of this window, it's no longer active. Has anyone ever encountered that? You're talking about McCarthyism. You're talking about uh, uh, any any one one of these these large movements that comes well, up and disappears. No, I just I just meant like is it is it ever? Are we ever able to look at a person like Lincoln? Let's just say and see him for what, how he interacted in the time in which he lived and hold him to that standard and see the good that he did? Or are we to the point where we have to retroactively assume that same level of, of like social and cultural uh, maturity that's got us, got us to the point where we're questioning these old figures? Uh, do we have to just completely disavow? I, like, is there is there a balance that could be struck? Does I don't. I don't think you need to. I don't think you need to disavow them, but I think it's important to acknowledge. Like, I mean, Christopher Columbus still did some amazing shit. He was a horrible person, and celebrating him is probably wrong. Right. His right? accomplishments are amazing, but should there be a Columbus Day? I I don't think there should be a day. I don't think there should be a day set aside to honor a person guilty of genocide. But I think Jeffrey brings up a really good point, which is um, you get into trouble, I think, when you look at the schools and you say, you've got to choose. You just have to choose. It's got to be one or the other. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's necessary. I think he's right. I don't think there's, there's a whole continuum out there where you can acknowledge somebody's person. You know, Listening to this, the thing that occurs to me, like with what you're saying, Jeffrey, is that um, these are accounts of people that are provided by someone. So right. we're getting a fil- we're getting a filtered opinion, and um, if um, again, I think that we should be as accurate as 
possible, but it's like when you're like, like say for instance, like right now, you know, when they're, when they're taking down monuments to um, civil war um, generals and stuff. Yeah. And you look mm -hmm. and you say, well, these monuments weren't put up at the time of the civil war. They came far later. And the statement that they were put there to make was really a racist mm -hmm. statement. So, so it's kind of like, you know, so you have the actual individual and then you have the response to that individual that comes later. So it, it's kind of like, this is like, um, he's a prophet. Yeah. And, and I'm, I guess I'm almost posing that more. It, I'm making a statement, but I'm interested to 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 everyone else's opinion. Well, I, I think I, I, that I think. our history is already a reconstruction. Exactly. And the things that you and I grew up with, and looking at these gods who are now cast in bronze and in parks. Um, that perception that we grew up with is detrimental to the extent that we blind ourselves to the, the whole reality that was going on. And again, it's, it's like an unintended consequence thing that we, we raise a generation to venerate some particular person about some particular thing, I think it's critical that they receive the whole view as we are becoming aware of it now. Okay. Well, we're about an hour, a half hour longer than we usually are, uh, <laughs> which is, uh, I find this, this conversation really fascinating. We have wandered far. And uh, my original statement is when a California looks at a um, image of fire, it stirs something up. And yeah, it stirred some stuff up in us. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Well, well, thank you all for, for talking. And uh, we'll meet you next time on, on the, the same program. Thank you. Been fun, John. Thanks. Yep. Good times all around. <laughs>